Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today, we continue our in-depth review of the Declaration of Independence. We are purposefully, entirely, countercultural and take deep dives in understanding what makes America the greatest nation in world history. The episodes take as long as they take. No artificial time limits here. If you are a longtime listener, I'm probably right thinking that in school, you hardly learned anything we address in the podcast. We would do grave disservice to America if we gave you the 280-character caricature or five-minute overview. You can get that most anywhere. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. Plus, Mike Gerard is slowly but surely remastering our prior episodes. Otherwise, please join us right here and right now. I'm joined today by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. In this episode, we are exploring the following grievances. Quote, He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislature. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. Unquote. We like to spice things up, so Mike Gerard will be leading off this episode. Why, thank you, Judge. Now, in our last regular episode, we explored the 7th through the 10th grievances that the colonists made against the king. They involved tamping down on the population of the colonies, obstructing the administration of justice, making judges dependent on the will of the king, and swarms of new officers harassing the people. Four of the next five grievances we're exploring in this episode center around the English military. The middle one blows a hole in Parliament's assertion that it can legislate for the Americans. The 11th grievance against the king is as follows. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislature. This is probably lost on most of us. I mean, we live in 2020. The United States has been the most powerful military force on the planet since 1945. We have the most destructive armed forces in world history. We have a strong standing army, navy, marine, air force, and coast guard. Plus, the president just launched the Space Force. We had to slip that in there. I mean, the three of us are all Trekkies. Live long and prosper. And may the force be with you. Anyways, there's about 2 million active and reserve servicemen and women. And if you really think about it, since 1941, we have been at war, punctuated with fleeting periods of peace. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, the War on Terror, Iraq, Libya, ISIS. And let's not forget the existential threat of the Cold War, including the Berlin Airlift Crisis, the Berlin Wall, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets' invasion of Afghanistan, and staring down thousands of Soviet nuclear weapons. So this grievance of having a standing army seems alien to us. Most people likely think we absolutely need a standing army, and that this couldn't be a big deal to the Founding Fathers, but it was a big deal. A very big deal. 
And to really understand it, we have to look back on English history. In the mid and late 1600s, England was torn apart by a series of civil wars. These wars, in very, very rough terms, pitted the elected representative parliament against the hereditary king. In the middle of these conflicts, the parliament realized it needed a new type of army. Until then, armies had been raised as needed. Once the war or even a battle was over, the armies would be disbanded. After all, the British Isles were islands, so Great Britain focused on a fabulous navy for protection and realized it didn't really need a standing army unless there was an impending threat of invasion. But in its continual conflicts against the king, the parliament had a moment of inspiration. Eureka! Yes, the parliament realized that it would be more likely to win if it had a professional standing army. It would be better trained, more strongly outfitted, ready to fight, anytime, anywhere, and at the Parliament's beck and call. So in 1645, at the urging of General Oliver Cromwell, the Parliament created the New Model Army, which became just such a permanent, ready, professional army to support Parliament. Led by Cromwell, these parliamentary armies defeated the king's forces and took control. The king literally was imprisoned. And soon, Cromwell purged the parliament of his enemies at the point of a sword. Parliament got pretty enthusiastic, so they beheaded King Charles I. Then, Cromwell militarily subdued England, Scotland, Ireland, Portugal, and the Dutch. Cromwell was in overdrive, working eight days a week. Oh God, no, I didn't mean it. Don't do it. Another opening, another Beatles song. Glorified folk music. Anyways, since things had settled down with Cromwell, it looked like Parliament might disband his army. The army didn't like that idea, though. They had a different one. The army actually came to Parliament and literally pulled the Speaker of the House out of his chair. And so the army dissolved Parliament. Remember, the army came to power to defend Parliament, and now that army dissolved Parliament. Well, that clearly didn't work out the way Parliament expected it to. Be careful of what you wish for, it might come true. And so Cromwell ruled the nation in what was in essence a military dictatorship, calling himself Lord Protector. Cromwell made efforts to reinstitute a more republican form of government, but those efforts really never amounted to much. When Cromwell gave up the ghost, the military tried to set up Cromwell's son, Richard, as the new leader of the nation. Richard Cromwell called for a new parliament, but the parliament was disagreeable to the military, so, you guessed it, Richard dissolved the new parliament. But then the worm turned once again, and the military deposed Richard. And after some more twists and turns worthy of several binge-worthy Netflix series, the son of the beheaded King Charles I was able to take power and restore the monarchy. The king, Charles I, is dead, long live the king, Charles II. John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon were journalists, historians, and political theorists in England in the early 1700s. They wrote a series of essays called The Independent Whig and Cato's Letters. 
They didn't have much of an impact in England, but they were wildly popular with the founding fathers. They were radical Whigs, fierce opponents of a strong king, and vigorous defenders of civil and political rights. Trenchard wrote A Short History of Standing Armies in England. Much of this history was based on the English Civil Wars. He explained that a standing army was a grave threat to liberty. As English history had borne out, if a popular parliament could be sacked by the military, then there was little hope in the future. This is a true and lively example of a government with an army, an army that was raised in the cause and for the sake of liberty, composed for the most part of men of religion and sobriety. If this army could commit such violences upon a parliament always successful, that had acquired so much reputation both at home and abroad, at a time when the whole people were trained in arms, and the pulse of the nation beat high for liberty, what are we to expect if in a future age an ambitious prince should arise with a dissolute and debauched army, a flattering clergy, a prostitute ministry, a bankrupt house of lords, a pensioner house of commons, and a slavish and corrupted nation? Trenchard then explains that King Charles II answered that question to the great ruin of the empire. He lists a series of oppressions undertaken by Charles II, and then explains that although Charles II disbanded the existing parliamentary army, he wanted his own forces to command, so he started to plot ways to obtain one. But he dared not have dreamed of all these violations if he had not had an army to justify them. He had thoughts at first of keeping up the Parliament army, but Chancellor Hyde prevailed upon him by this argument that they were a body of men that had cut off his father's head, that they had set up and pulled down several sorts of government, and it might be his own turn next, so that his fears prevailing over his ambition, he consented to disband them, but soon found how vain and abortive a thing arbitrary power would prove without an army. He therefore tried always to get one. Stated another way, Charles II knew that the key to oppressing his enemies and ruling without mercy was to have a standing army, one loyal to him. King Charles II then tried to create various excuses for raising an army, including a war in Ireland, Holland, and France. It took longer than he desired, but he slowly and surely built up a standing army. Trenchard continues. Thus, we see the king husbanded a few guards so well that in a small number of years they grew to a formidable army, notwithstanding all the endeavors of then Parliament to the contrary. So difficult is it to prevent the growing of an evil that does not receive a check in the beginning. Charles II very cleverly built up a formidable standing army because once that evil precedent had happened, it couldn't be resisted. There was no way to put that genie back in the bottle. And this led to the oppression of the people and tyranny of Charles II. Worse, the people didn't seem to mind. In fact, they rather seemed to enjoy it. Trenchard's pithy comments explains. Towards the latter end of this king's reign, 
The nation had so entirely lost all sense of liberty that they grew fond of their chains. But the English were saved. Charles II died. His brother, James II, ascended to the throne. Trenchard believed that if either Charles II continued to live or James II had ruled longer, then the English would have become slaves like those in France and on the continent. Sensing this danger, the Parliament, who had finally been restored, invited William the Orange and his wife Mary, and Mary was the daughter of King Charles II, to literally invade England and depose King James II. Let me say that again. The English Parliament invited the daughter of the king, who married a Dutchman, to invade England and depose her own father. Now, hey, that's worthy of a few podcasts or a Netflix series. In any event, William and Mary took up the offer and invaded in 1688. James II knew the jig was up. He was unpopular with the military and the Parliament, and so he fled, tossing the Great Seal of England into the River Thames. William and Mary became joint rulers of England. The victors were so delighted with this outcome, they called it the Glorious Revolution. Mike Gerard, this is all really fascinating, but can we get back to standing armies? Bombastic Brent Bassett, be patient, my young Padawan. This has everything to do with standing armies. See, in exchange for being able to take the crown, William and Mary pledged to a number of conditions, including agreeing to the Bill of Rights of 1689. And that Bill of Rights, among other things, included the following provision, that the raising or keeping a standing army within the kingdom in time of peace, unless it be with the consent of Parliament, is against the law. The Founding Fathers realized that this prohibition against standing armies, that is, no standing army unless agreed to by the legislature, was a critical protection for unalienable rights. It was one of the cornerstones of English liberty. The English codified this belief in the Mutiny Act of 1689. It's called that because it was the first act to punish mutiny and desertions of military forces, in addition, important for our purposes, the Mutiny Act provided that no standing army could be approved for longer than a single year. And as such, each year the Parliament had to approve the number and types of military forces in the kingdom. They did so by passing a new Mutiny Act each year. Remember, at the start of the dispute with England, the founders considered themselves Englishmen, fighting for the rights of Englishmen. So they believed, in accordance with the Bill of Rights of 1689 and the Mutiny Acts, that no standing armies should be on colonial soil without the approval of the colonial assemblies, and they should be approved on an annual basis. For example, James Madison, father of the Constitution, explained on the floor of the Constitutional Convention. In time of actual war, great discretionary powers are constantly given to the executive magistrate. Constant apprehension of war has the same tendency to render the head too large for the body. A standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have always been the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies, kept up under the pretext of defending, have enslaved the people. 
of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debt and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. Elbridge Gerry, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a framer of the Bill of Rights, remarked in a more pithy observation on the floor of the House of Representatives that A standing army is the bane of liberty. In 1776, leading son of liberty, Samuel Adams, wrote to Massachusetts political leader James Warren that a militia was important to protecting liberty. Unlike a standing army, a militia was only called into action during emergencies and was composed of the most able-bodied men in the community. The militia provided the force of arms necessary for protecting the unalienable rights of the people. A standing army, on the other hand, was a danger to liberty. The army developed loyalties not to the people, but to their officers and to the army. Professional soldiers could easily be a ready instrument to crush the people. A standing army, however necessary it may be at some times, is always dangerous to the liberties of the people. Soldiers are apt to consider themselves as a body distinct from the rest of the citizens. They have their arms always in their hands. Their rules and their discipline is severe. They soon become attached to their officers and disposed to yield implicit obedience to their commands. Such a power should be watched with a jealous eye. Samuel Adams recognized that the officers of the Continental Army in 1776 were patriots and good men. But who would be their successors? Could they be trusted? And could the people be trusted if the military produced heroes bent on oppression? Wouldn't the troops be seduced by their military heroes? Men who have been long subject to military laws and inured to military customs and habits may lose the spirit and feeling of citizens. And even citizens, having been used to admire the heroism which the commanders of their own army have displayed, and to look up to them as their saviors, may be prevailed upon to surrender to them those rights for the protection of which, against invaders, they had employed and paid them. We have seen too much of this disposition among some of our own countrymen. Even the general in command of America's revolutionary army, George Washington, would confess to his aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, that the army is a dangerous instrument to play with. And the British did more than play with their army. Following the conclusion of the French and Indian War in 1763, British troops remained stationed throughout North America. The Empire's future Undersecretary of the American Department, William Knox, as early as 1763, remarked that The main purpose of stationing a large body of troops in America would be to secure the dependence of the colonies on Great Britain. In 1765, English troops arrived in New York and the colony was most chagrined about this state of affairs. New York was supposed to be the central command for British America's regular troops, and the New Yorkers refused to give them barracks. A confrontation between the colonial legislature and the empire began, but New York eventually relented. But it was really in 1768 when the pivot point happened. After having backed down from the Stamp Act, the British passed the Townsend Acts, 
What's important about the Acts here is that Boston became the center of robust protests against the Acts, and the Empire responded by landing two regiments of redcoats in Boston. That's a polite way of saying England foisted over 4,000 soldiers to occupy Boston to suppress the rights of the Patriots. After this, a standing army not approved by the colonies was a fixture on the continent and a hated symbol and instrumentality of British oppression. Judge Warren's namesake and potential distant ancestor, Mercy Otis Warren, wrote the first real history of the American Revolution. She used primary sources, including many interviews, in her History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution, In 1805, she explained the importance of the 1768 decision. The troops arrived from Halifax. This was indeed a painful era. The American War may be dated from this hostile act, a day which marks with infamy the councils of Great Britain. As reflected by Warren, this was a turning point in the conflict with Great Britain, because now the empire had boots on the ground. Before the French and Indian War, the colonists pretty much fended for themselves. They were creating a new social compact in the wilderness. And with the policy of salutary neglect, they were governing themselves with minimal intrusion from the British Isles. Once troops landed in Boston, the ground rules were fundamentally altered. The British intended to assert their rule with military force. Every other grievance the Founding Fathers listed in the Declaration of Independence was compounded with the threat of a standing army to enforce Britain's oppression. They would stamp out American liberties with troops if necessary. The ideas of limited government and protecting unalienable rights would be crushed underfoot of the standing army. In addition, close contact with the military didn't encourage confidence in the standing army. The National History Education Clearinghouse summarizes. Colonials who fought victoriously alongside British redcoats in the Seven Years' War concluded that the ranks of British redcoats were generally filled with coarse, profane drunkards. Even the successful conclusion of that conflict served to confirm colonists' starkly negative attitudes towards the institution of a standing army. Although elected to attend as a delegate, Thomas Jefferson couldn't attend the First Continental Congress, but he gave the world something better than his mere presence. He wrote a work explaining his positions for the Virginia delegation. It was reviewed and considered by the First Continental Congress, and it was later published as A Summary View of the Rights of British America. In essence, it was a preview to the Declaration of Independence, giving more details that the Declaration could muster. Jefferson elaborated how the British had abused standing armies in America. That in order to enforce the arbitrary measures before complained of, His Majesty has, from time to time, sent among us large bodies of armed forces, not made up of the people here, not raised by the authority of our laws. Did His Majesty possess such a right as this, it might swallow up our other rights whatever he should think proper. But His Majesty has no right to land a single armed man on our shores, and those whom he sends here are liable to our laws made for the suppression and punishment of riots, routs, and unlawful assemblies, or our hostile bodies invading us in defiance of law. In other words, the king had no authority to send standing armies, and they were criminals. 
Jefferson explained how troops from Hanover were being used to crush the Americans. This was done in circumvention of British law. Hanover is the German province that was the historical birthplace of King George III's grandfather. When the king's grandfather had to resort to such troops, he asked Parliament for permission. That precedent, Jefferson explained, applied to the entire empire even now. When in the course of the late war it became expedient that a body of Hanoverian troops should be brought over for the defense of Great Britain, His Majesty's grandfather, our late sovereign, did not pretend to introduce them under any authority he possessed. Such a measure would have given just alarm to his subjects in Great Britain, whose liberties would not be safe if armed men of another country and of another spirit might be brought into the realm at any time without the consent of their legislature. He therefore applied to Parliament, who passed an act for the purpose, limiting the number to be brought in and the time they were to continue. In like manner is his majesty restrained in every part of the empire. He possesses indeed the executive power of the laws in every state, but they are the laws of the particular state which he is to administer within that state, and not those of any one within the limits of another. Every state must judge for itself the number of armed men which they may safely trust among them, of whom they are to consist and under what restrictions they shall be laid. In other words, the king was entitled to land foreign troops in the colonies, but only if the colony agreed, and none agreed. Quite the opposite, the foreign mercenaries coming to America were the king's troops alone, loyal to him and not the colony. They would be puppets of the king to crush American liberties. At the conclusion of their meeting, the First Continental Congress determined to issue a declaration and resolves that demanded that Great Britain back off from American oppressions. Much of it echoed Jefferson's A Summary View. It was issued on October 14, 1774, and the declaration and resolves unequivocally declared that the keeping a standing army in these colonies in times of peace without the consent of the legislature of that colony in which such army is kept is against the law. The colonies were united in opposing standing armies that were not approved by the legislature of the colony in which the armies were deployed. Without the legislature's consent, standing armies completely broke the social compact, which requires that the government be accountable to the people here, they were totally unaccountable. Furthermore, such standing armies subverted limited government and the unalienable rights of the people. And now, for bombastic Brent Bassett, take the 12th grievance, please. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Building upon the 11th grievance, the 12th grievance declared as follows, quote, he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to civil power, unquote. This grievance involves one of the several ways that the Empire reacted to the Boston Tea Party. As we have noted previously, in 1773, Bostonians, disguised as Native Americans, boarded ships in the Boston Harbor and tossed into the harbor precious tea. They did so because the tea was laden with taxes passed by Parliament without the representation of the colonists. This protest enraged the British leadership, and they lowered the hammer on Boston through a set of acts, which the colonists dubbed the Intolerable Acts. 
One of those acts, the Massachusetts Government Act, totally upended government in Massachusetts. We will explore this in more detail in later episodes, and one of its most egregious features is that it revoked the existing 1691-issued colonial charter and empowered the king to appoint the governor. Since Boston was the hotbed of colonial resistance, the king decided to show those rebels something and appointed General Thomas Gage to run the colony. Gage relished the opportunity to put down the inklings of a revolt in Boston and deployed troops to suppress colonial dissent. As we just learned from the grievance about standing armies, the reality of liberty in great measure hinged on the fact that the civilian authorities controlled the military and not vice versa. But here, the colony's civilian government was displaced by the military, and the military was now independent of and superior to civil authorities. The Englishman, General Gage, replaced the native-born Massachusetts governor, Thomas Hutchinson, who fled Massachusetts and sought exile in England. Ironically, after the Declaration of Independence was issued, Hutchinson anonymously printed a rebuttal of the Declaration of Independence. We refer to it in some of our prior episodes, in connection with his own discharge as a civilian governor by a general, former Governor Hutchinson conceded most of the point. When the subordinate civil powers of the empire became aiders of the people in their acts of rebellion, the king, as well he might, has employed the military power to reduce those rebellious civil powers to their constitutional subjection to the supreme civil power. In no other sense has he ever affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Not quite convincing. Jefferson once again laid out a preview of this grievance in A Summary View of the Rights of British America. To render these proceedings still more criminal against our laws, instead of subjecting the military to the civil powers, His Majesty has expressly made the civil subordinate to the military. But can His Majesty thus put down all law under his feet? Can he erect a power superior to that which he erected himself? He has done it indeed by force, but let him remember that force cannot give right. The king would answer, Balderdash, I can erect a power based on the military, and force will make right. When General Gage took power, he placed regiments of soldiers on Boston Common and aggressively cracked down on Bostonian patriots. He, in essence, was the supreme leader in Massachusetts, combining military command and civil government the very subversion of freedom. After all, civil government depends on the people, and when that is subverted by the military, all freedom vanishes. In contemporary terms, imagine that in reaction to riots in Minneapolis and Portland, the president fired the governors and mayors and replaced them with army generals. Unthinkable today. The subordination of the civilian government to the military smashes the social compact, as the military is to be a servant of the people, not the other way around. It also destroys unlimited government and unalienable rights. Judge, why don't you jump in here? After all, 13 is your lucky number. Thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett. You are right. 13 is my lucky number. And it is a very critical grievance. The 13th grievance takes a detour from the military focus. Quote, 
he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. Unquote. Now, this almost sounds like a prefatory or introductory phrase to a set of other grievances, and in fact it is, and its importance could be easily missed, but it is much more. In fact, it is perhaps the key grievance in the entire Declaration of Independence. What it means is that Parliament has no authority to legislate for the colonies. Notice this critique is very sly. It never mentions Parliament by name. Instead, it vaguely refers to the king, working with, quote, others, unquote. Some historians have fixated on the creation of a new colonial board of trade that was created in 1767. That board of trade established new laws to enforce mercantilism. But that seems a rather myopic view. As will soon be flushed out, this grievance is a full frontal assault on the Parliament's claim to rule over the colonies. The Empire, of course, scoffed at this idea. To make the Parliament's position exceedingly clear, after the Parliament rescinded the Stamp Act on March 18, 1766, it passed the Declaratory Act. Some have claimed that the Declaratory Act was just a safe face. But it was much more than that. The Parliament understood that if the Stamp Act was repealed, that the colonies would likely believe that they did not have to comply with any of the Parliament's laws unless the Parliament set the record straight. The Declaratory Act was very short and provided. The colonies in America have been, are, and of right ought to be subordinate unto and dependent upon the imperial crown and parliament of Great Britain, and that the king's majesty, by and with the advice and consent of parliament assemble, has, and of right ought to have, full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and the people of America as subjects of the crown of Great Britain, in all cases whatsoever. All resolutions, votes, orders, and proceedings in any of the said colonies, without the power and authority of the Parliament in Great Britain to make those laws and statutes as aforesaid, is denied, and are hereby declared to be utterly null and void, for all intents and purposes whatsoever. There it is. The Declaratory Act claimed to have laid down the law. The Parliament was supreme over the colonists. The Parliament declared any law or declaration contrary to their position to be null and void. The British defended this position by claiming that the colonists were virtually represented in Parliament. The Parliament patiently explained that although none of the colonists voted for those who served in Parliament, the Parliament as a whole was representing the interest of everyone in the empire. In fact, the English noted that the parliament did not directly represent even everyone in Britain. Large cities like Manchester, Birmingham, and Sheffield had no representatives, so the colonies didn't need them either. American patriot James Otis responded, To what purpose is it to ring everlasting changes to the colonies on the cases of Manchester, Birmingham, and Sheffield, who return no members to parliament, if those considerable places are not represented, they ought to be. It may perhaps sound strangely to some, but it is my most humble opinion, as good law and as good sense too, to affirm that all the plebeians of Great Britain are in fact, or virtually, represented in the assembly of the Native American tribe of Tocororus, 
as all the colonists are in fact or virtually represented in the Honorable House of Commons of Great Britain. In other words, James Otis argued, the virtual representation argument was a joke. It would be like saying those living in Mexico were virtually represented in Russia. Patriot Arthur Lee made fun of the argument with a stinging rebuke. Our privileges are virtual. Our sufferings are real. The preposterous nature of the Parliament's position did not evoke many longer responses. It was pretty much self-evident that virtual representation was a mockery of representative government. Nevertheless, Daniel Delaney, a political leader of Maryland and a fabulous, well-known lawyer, wrote a searing attack on the doctrine of virtual representation in an anti-Stamp Act pamphlet published in 1765 named Considerations on the Propriety of Imposing Taxes in the British Colonies. Many scholars have called it the most influential pamphlet attacking the Stamp Act. After noting that virtual representation was based on falsehoods, Delaney thundered, Virtual representation is a mere cobweb, spread to catch the unwary and entangle the weak. There is not that intimate and inseparable relation between the electors of Great Britain and the inhabitants of the colonies, which must inevitably involve both in the same taxation. On the contrary, not a single elector in England might be immediately affected by a taxation in America, imposed by a statute which would have a general operation and effect upon the properties of the inhabitants of the colonies. The latter might be oppressed in a thousand shapes, without any sympathy, or exciting any alarm in the former. Moreover, even acts oppressive and injuries to the colonies in an extreme degree might become unpopular in England from the promise or expectation that the very measures which depress the colonies will give ease to the inhabitants of Great Britain. Nine years later, Jefferson attacked the doctrine of virtual representation in a summary view of the rights of British America. First, he condemned a series of acts passed by Parliament, and then remarked that they were null and void, and that the King should have the Parliament back off. That these are the acts of power, assumed by a body of men, foreign to our constitutions, and unacknowledged by our laws, against which we do on behalf of the inhabitants of British America, enter this our solemn and determined protest. And we do earnestly entreat His Majesty, as yet the only mediating power between the several states of the British Empire, to recommend to His Parliament of Great Britain the total revocation of these acts which, however useless they may be, may yet prove the cause of further discontents and jealousies among us. Remember, Jefferson wrote this in 1774, and in 1774, Congress had not yet taken the step to declare the king the enemy. Here, Jefferson was hoping that the king would intervene on behalf of the colonies, and tell the parliament that it had no power over the colonies, and to knock it off. And the king agreed. No. As Heath Ledger's Joker tells us, this was a laughable proposition to the king. He and Parliament had been working hand in glove to pass the acts of pretended legislation that the colonies were chafing under. Former Massachusetts Governor Hutchinson expressed the exasperation the king must have felt at this grievance. This is a strange way of defining the part which the kings of England take in conjunction with the lords and commons in passing acts of Parliament. But why is our present sovereign to be distinguished from all his predecessors since Charles the Second, 
And then, how can a jurisdiction submitted to for more than a century be foreign to their constitution? And is it not the grossest prevarication to say this jurisdiction is unacknowledged by their laws, when all acts of Parliament which respect them have at all times been their rule of law in all their judicial proceedings? Is this not enough? Their own subordinate legislatures have repeatedly, in addresses and resolves in the most expressed terms, acknowledged the supremacy of Parliament. And so late as 1764, before the conductors of this rebellion had settled their plan, the House of Representatives of the leading colony made a public declaration in an address to their governor that, although they humbly apprehended, they might propose their objections to the late Act of Parliament for granting certain duties in the British colonies and plantations in America, yet at the same time acknowledged that it was their duty to yield obedience to it, while it continued unrepealed. As Hutchinson laid out, this argument seemed to fly in the face of law and history. The Parliament had passed laws regulating the colonies for a century, and now, all of a sudden, Everything Parliament did was pretended legislation? This seemed utter nonsense. This may be why some historians focused on the Board of Trade we mentioned earlier, but a careful reading of Jefferson's A Summary View reveals that he was taking aim at all of the Parliament's legislative power over the colonies. First, A Summary View is addressed to the King, hoping to divide the legitimate King from the illegitimate Parliament. Second, it explains that under the laws of nature, when a people immigrate from a homeland to a new country and establish a new government, that they are no longer beholden to their old homeland's government. He points out that the English Isles were settled by Saxons. And once they created a new home in England, their old rulers in Saxony no longer could govern those who lived in England. And this was more so in America. He waxed a bit eloquently here. America was conquered, and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was spilt in acquiring lands for their settlements. Their own fortunes expended in making those settlements effect. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and not for themselves alone they have a right to hold. Not a shilling was ever issued from the public treasures of his majesty or his ancestors for their assistance, till of very late times, after the colonies had become established on a firm and permanent footing. Third, Jefferson then acknowledged that the British had helped during the French and Indian War. But this was no different than helping other allies like Portugal. It didn't change the fundamental relationship between the colonies and the Parliament any more than giving foreign assistance to Portugal would convert that country into the vassals of the King of Great Britain. Fourth, Jefferson continued to explain that the argument that the Parliament ruled over the independent people of America, if accepted, would reduce the Americans to slavery, not to the King, but to the voters of England and Parliament. This is a bit long, but a magnificent passage. Just wait for it. Not only the principles of common sense, but the common feelings of human nature must be surrendered up before this majesty's subjects here can be persuaded to believe that they hold their political existence at the will of a British parliament. 
Shall these governments be dissolved, their property annihilated, and their people reduced to a state of nature at the imperious breath of a body of men, whom they never saw, in whom they never confided, over whom they have no powers of punishment or removal? Let their crimes against the American public ever be so great? Can any one reason be assigned why 160,000 electors in the island of Great Britain should give law to 4 millions in the states of America, every individual of whom is equal to every individual of them in virtue, in understanding, and in bodily strength? Were this to be admitted, instead of being a free people, as we have hitherto supposed, and mean to continue ourselves, we should suddenly be found the slaves, not of one, but of one hundred and sixty thousand tyrants, distinguished too from all others by this singular circumstance, that they are removed from the reach of fear, the only restraining motive which may hold the hand of a tyrant. Had he stuff? As we know, Jefferson's A Summary View was something he wrote for the Virginia delegation attending the First Continental Congress. It was just his own view. For a moment, when the First Continental Congress passed its Declaration and Resolves, it incorporated Jefferson's arguments. In fact, it did so in very, very plain language, just in case the Parliament and King were having problems understanding. That the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America, by the immutable laws of nature, the principles of the English Constitution, and the several charters or compacts, have the following rights. 1. That they are entitled to life, liberty, and property, and they have never ceded to any sovereign power whatever a right to dispose of either without their consent. 2. That our ancestors who first settled these colonies were at the time of their immigration from the mother country entitled to all the rights, liberties, and immunities of free and natural born subjects within the realm of England. 3. That by such immigration they by no means forfeited, surrendered, or lost any of those rights but that they were and their descendants now are entitled to the exercise and enjoyment of all such of them as their local and other circumstances enable them to exercise and enjoy. 4. That the foundations of English liberty and of all free government is a right in the people to participate in their legislative council. And as the English colonists are not represented and from their local and other circumstances cannot be represented in the British Parliament, they are entitled to a free and exclusive power of legislation in their several provincial legislatures where their right of representation can alone be preserved in all cases of taxation and internal policy subject only to the negative of their sovereign. That would be the king. The Congress made a forceful position that since the people are not represented in Parliament, they are not subject to its power. But the reality was that at times the colonies acted as if they were subject to such power. And that gets back to Hutchinson's point. The Congress was not blind to history and tradition, but instead of bowing to it, they explained it away as follows. 
but from the necessity of the case and a regard to the mutual interest of both countries. We cheerfully consent to the operation of such acts of the British Parliament as are bona fide restrained to the regulation of our external commerce for the purpose of securing the commercial advantages of the whole empire to the mother country and the commercial benefits of its respective members of excluding every idea of taxation, internal or external, for raising a revenue on the subjects in America without their consent. So there you have it. Congress meets Hutchinson's argument by saying they didn't need to consent to mercantilism and the regulatory regime passed by the parliament. But the colonists did so because of the mutual advantage it afforded everyone involved. It was kind of like a contract of goodwill and mutual advantage or a treaty between cousins. But that is quite a different proposition than Parliament has the unlimited power to impose its will on the colonists without their consent. The Declaration and Resolves ends with 1. A call for the repeal of a slew of acts passed by Parliament. 2. Announcing a trade boycott against England until the acts are repealed. And 3. An agreement to write addresses, think of them as lengthy petitions, directed to the people of England, the English colonists in British America, and that would include Canada and the Caribbean Islands, and the King. Obviously, the addresses issued pursuant to the Declaration and Resolves failed to change the hearts of the English people or the King. The 13th grievance of the Declaration of Independence simply was the culmination of what had been explained for years before. With this grievance, all the dangers of infringing the first principles were present. There was no rule of law, just the rule of Parliament in violation of the law. There was no social compact, because again, the Parliament did not represent the people. As such, the government by definition could not be limited, and it violated the unalienable rights of the people. Following the 13th grievance are nine specific examples attacking the king and parliament's joint actions to oppress the people under this pretended legislation. We could call them 13A, 13B, etc., but that's way too confusing, and it's not quite right anyway. They are each an independent, vital grievance, so we will continue to count them as before. The 14th grievance is something everyone who was educated in the United States should remember. Quote, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, unquote. There is an elementary school level understanding of this grievance, that redcoats barged into people's homes, lived there, and ate whatever they wanted. In other words, the people's homes were the forced living quarters for the soldiers. But like just about everything else you learned about the American Revolution, it's not quite the reality. But let's go back to merry old England to understand why quartering of troops was considered an affront to the colonists. As we discussed earlier, under the English Bill of Rights of 1689 and the Mutiny Acts, there could be no standing army in England without the approval of the Parliament on an annual basis. In addition, the Bill of Rights of 1689 protected the right of the people to be free from the burden of quartering troops without the consent of the homeowner. The English Mutiny Act, however, treated the colonies different. The colonies were ignored, so they were not required to quarter troops. This seemed to make sense in light of the fact that the colonies raised their own militias, were on the frontier of the empire, and the policy of salutary neglect generally left the colonies alone. But like so much more, that changed with the end of the French and Indian War. The British had a serious quandary. What to do with the troops stationed in North America? During the war, the colonies had generally provided for the needs of the soldiers, including food and shelter. 
with the end of the war, the colonies were hardly eager to support a standing army of British soldiers. Meanwhile, the British were eager to keep the soldiers in the colonies. First, the English didn't want to have to pay the freight to bring them home or keep them in the colonies. They were already saddled with an enormous war debt incurred from their victory in the war. Second, they had decided to stop the expansion of the colonies to the west. We addressed this a bit in Grievances 3 and 7, and we will cover this in greater detail in future episodes. But the Parliament passed the Proclamation Act of 1763, which provided that the colonies could no longer expand beyond a proclamation line on the western border. It pretty much aligned with the Appalachian Mountains. This was motivated in part to establish a hard line between Native Americans and the colonists. To enforce the proclamation line, the British began to fortify it with forts. Third, the British were changing their imperial policies in the colonies, and they needed troops to enforce these very unpopular policies. To make all this work in 1765, the British sent tens of thousands of imperial troops to the colonies. That was a ton of troops to feed and shelter. General Thomas Gage, the British Commander-in-Chief of North America, urged the Parliament to pass a law specifically requiring the colonies to quarter imperial troops. Parliament agreed, and on March 24, 1765, it passed the Quartering Act of 1765. That act provided that if public houses and barracks were unavailable, the troops could live in alehouses, inns, private homes of those selling wine or alcohol, livery stables, uninhabited homes, and outbuildings, such as barns. Colonial governments had to pay for food, shelter, bedding, cooking utensils, firewood, salt, vinegar, beer, cider, and candles. Soldiers, however, could be punished if they tried to live in places other than what was authorized. For example, a common occupied home. Hutchinson defended the Quartering Act of 1765 and subsequent acts as follows. When troops were employed in America in the last reign to protect the colonies against the French invasion, it was necessary to provide against mutiny and desertion, and to secure proper quarters. Temporary acts of Parliament were passed for that purpose, and submitted to in the colonies. Upon the peace, raised ideas took place in the colonies of their own importance, and caused a reluctance against parliamentary authority, and an opposition to the acts for quartering troops, not because the provision made was in itself unjust or unequal, but because they were acts of a parliament whose authority was denied. The provision was as similar to that in England as the state of the colonies would admit. The Americans agreed with Hutchinson that the dispute revolved around Parliament's authority to pass the Quartering Act of 1765. But of course, they had a diametrically opposed view than that of Parliament. Leading colonists believed that Parliament had no such authority. We just addressed this in the 13th Grievance. In addition, the Americans saw the Quartering Act of 1765 as an attempt to force the colonists to pay for a standing army that they despised. Furthermore, Samuel Adams noted that the act was basically just as much as a tax on the colonies as the Stamp Act. As mentioned a bit earlier, New York was the British military headquarters for the colonies, and in 1766, the British intended to disembark and quarter 1,500 troops in New York City. The New York Provincial Assembly balked, and the troops were stuck on their ships. Eventually, a small riot broke out in the streets of New York City over the stalemate. Enraged, Parliament threatened to close down the New York Assembly. But the Assembly caved, 
and paid for the quartering of troops. The Quartering Act of 1765 was intensely unpopular in the colonies. Soon the crisis shifted from New York to, well, where else? Boston. As we discussed in connection with the grievance regarding standing armies, when Boston protested the Townshend Acts in 1767, the next year, the British shipped thousands of troops to occupy the city. They arrived in Boston Harbor on September 18, 1768, and they had no place to disembark and live. Massachusetts refused to give the troops quarters in the major portions of Boston. They suggested to the military that they go to Castle William, which was three miles away from the population center of the city. But the British commander wanted at least half of his troops to have an imposing presence in the main area of the city. When the local government refused to allow the troops to be near the city center, the British commander had one regiment march through the city and camp on Boston Common in the heart of the city. Then another regiment took over Fanu Hall, a famous public meeting hall. They weren't done. Other troops took over the city's governmental offices. The Bostonians were unmoved. They continued to refuse quarters. On October 27, 1768, Redcoats occupied other commercial buildings that the military commander had actually rented. The Redcoats would not leave, and tensions only continued to increase between the soldiers and the common folks of Boston who, egged on by the Sons of Liberty, were increasingly overtly hostile. This situation exploded on March 5, 1770 in the Boston Massacre. In the aftermath of the massacre, the troops actually left Boston. The Quartering Act of 1765 was allowed to quietly expire in the same year. Well, at least we dodged that bullet, right? As Cesar Romero's Joker tells us, no, that bullet was not dodged, just delayed. With the Boston Tea Party, Parliament passed a new set of acts in 1774, called the Intolerable Acts by the Patriots. The Intolerable Acts included the Boston Port Act, which closed down the harbor of Boston, the Massachusetts Government Act, which basically gutted self-government in Massachusetts, the Administration of Justice Act, which essentially subverted justice in Massachusetts, and the Quebec Act, which wiped out English law in Canada. Don't worry, we will do all these acts justice here or in later episodes. Another intolerable act was the 1774 Quartering Act, which applied across all the colonies. The act basically resurrected the Quartering Act of 1765 with one major oppressive change. In the prior act, the local legislative assembly was empowered to find the places to quarter the troops. The 1774 act provided the governor with that authority. This was an important change for two main reasons. Reason first, with just a couple of exceptions, the governors were loyal to the crown, while the legislative assemblies were hostile to the empire. Reason second, in Massachusetts, the Colonial Assembly was abolished by one of the other intolerable acts, that is the Massachusetts Government Act. The governor, who as we just learned, was also the general in charge of the occupying troops, had the duty of finding quarters. 700 redcoats occupied Boston, supported with a British fleet armed with cannons. Bostonians refused to quarter them, and the events of 1768 started to repeat themselves. Meanwhile, simply exacerbating the fears of a standing army, Parliament voted to raise another 10,000 men for the American theater, including Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and other seaports. Still, that the British took over inhabited common homes under either the 1765 or 1774 Quartering Acts seems to be a myth, and not even one created by the Founding Fathers. 
Nevertheless, the idea of having to support a standing army that is occupying your land to crush your liberties was too much for the patriots. It was another vital grievance against the empire. Highlighted in the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress in 1774, and then again in the Declaration of Independence, the unconsented to quartering of troops threatened the rule of law, subverted the social compact, violated the unalienable rights of the people, and undermined limited government. Mike Gerard batted leadoff, and we'll let him back clean up too. Mike Gerard, the batter's box is yours. Thanks, Judge. Our last grievance to cover in this episode is the 15th. For protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. Now, a few historians inappropriately focus on a couple of aberrant trials that occurred in the pre-revolutionary period in which English defendants were wrongly acquitted. But the Declaration was clearly taking aim at yet another intolerable act, the Administration of Justice Act, passed by Parliament on May 20, 1774. In the wake of the Boston Massacre, Parliament decided to switch the rules of justice. Now, this was actually very interesting, since almost all of those who perpetrated the Boston Massacre were acquitted. The massacre occurred on March 5, 1770. British soldiers gunned down and killed five unarmed patriots. The town was livid, and the soldiers and officers involved were put on trial for murder. John Adams, an exemplary lawyer and leading force against British oppression, had a zealous desire to ensure that justice was done. He took the case and admirably defended the British soldiers. Although several were on trial, all were acquitted of murder, while only two were convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Their thumbs were branded, which is much better than death. And Adams and the jury proved that even the hated lobsterbacks could find justice in an American court of law. Yet it was inconsequential to Britain. After the Boston Tea Party in 1773, the British pounded on Massachusetts. The dreaded Administration of Justice Act basically gave the governor unlimited power to remove trials involving murder or other capital offenses to another colony or even to England. The preamble of the act claimed that it was an act for the impartial administration of justice in the cases of persons questioned for any acts done by them in the execution of the law or for the suppression of riots and tumults in the province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England. The act specifically found that Massachusetts courts could not be trusted and that the laws of the parliament were not being enforced and needed to be. Accordingly, the law protected government officials who were executing their duties, trying to suppress riots or supporting tax laws. Historian Sidney George Fisher explained the purpose of the act in clear terms. This refers to an act of parliament passed in 1774 for the impartial administration of justice, which provided that officers of the revenue and persons acting by authority of magistrates who, in putting down riots and rebellions in the colonies, should be accused of murder, should be taken for trial to England or to a more peaceful colony. The government feared that anyone accused by the colonists of murder in quelling riots 
could not be fairly tried in the colony where the riot occurred. He would be convicted as a matter of course by any jury drawn from uh, people, most of whom sympathized with the riots and believed that the acts of Parliament under which the riot was put down were void. In other words, to protect British soldiers or officials who killed people during the course of enforcing unjust laws, the governor could move their trials to another colony, or better yet, Great Britain, before the king's bench, with a jury drawn from Middlesex, England. The law also authorized the governor to require witnesses to attend such trials and be required to post bail to ensure their appearance and or to pay the expenses of the witnesses to attend. The act also allowed the accused to post bond and not be held in custody pending trial, a highly unusual privilege for a defendant accused of murder or other capital offenses at the time. This was obviously ridiculous to the colonists. Remember, moving the trial to England was not done to protect the unalienable rights of the people, but to protect the British soldiers and British officials who were enforcing martial law and oppressing the unalienable rights of the people. And it wasn't even necessary. Hadn't Boston proven itself a fair place to try a case? Didn't John Adams' magnificent defense of those accused of murder in the Boston Massacre prove that? Didn't the community where the evils were committed have a voice in ensuring justice was done? This right of being tried by a jury of peers in the location where a crime occurred had been firmly embedded in English law, and yet it was another casualty of the intolerable acts. Jefferson scoffed at the idea of a trial held overseas by a jury of Englishmen. In his A Summary View, he had also assaulted the idea of forcing witnesses to go across the ocean and to post a bond to ensure their appearance, which in essence was another tax without representation targeted at the special class of witnesses. The witnesses also, on receipt of such a sum as the governor shall think it reasonable for them to expend, are to enter into recognizance to appear at the trial. This is, in other words, taxing them to the amount of their recognizance, and that amount may be whatever a governor pleases. For who does his majesty think can be prevailed on to cross the Atlantic for the sole purpose of bearing evidence to a fact? Now, Jefferson recognized that the expenses of the witnesses were to be paid for by the government, but that was little comfort to his family. His expenses are to be borne indeed, as they shall be estimated by the governor, but who are to feed the wife and children whom he leaves behind, who have had no other subsistence but his daily labor? Then Jefferson switched the argument on its head. If the accused was a resident of Massachusetts, then the defendant lost his right to be tried by a jury of his peers in the place from which the crime occurred, and certainly the British would be out to convict. And the wretched criminal, if he happened to have offended on the American side, stripped of his privilege of trial by his peers of his vicinity, removed from the place where a lone counsel without friends, without exculpatory proof, is tried before judges predetermined to condemn, 
the cowards who would suffer a countryman to be torn from the bowels of their society in order to be thus offered a sacrifice to parliamentary tyranny would merit that everlasting infamy now affixed on the authors of this act. This broadside was echoed in the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress when it declared that the respective colonies are entitled to the common law of England, and more especially to the great and inestimable privilege of being tried by their peers of the vicinage according to the course of that law. In this shorthand, the First Continental Congress explained that the Administration of Justice Act violated the rule of law, broke the social compact, infringed unalienable rights, and swallowed up limited government. And now, back to you, Judge Warren. Thank you, Mike Gerard. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Declaration of Independence is not just a declaration of principles and lofty sentiments, but it lists a specific set of grievances by which the British Empire had violated the first principles of free and just government. The 11th grievance addresses how the Empire's creation of a standing army in America ruined the rule of law threatened the unalienable rights of the people, subverted the social compact, and blew up the idea of a limited government. The Twelfth Grievance explains that by making the military superior to the civil power, the empire undermined the first principles of a free and just government. The Thirteenth Grievance lays out how the king and parliament conspired to have parliament pass laws for the colonies as pretended legislation. Pretending meaning that the parliament acted like it had the power it really didn't have, and that by doing so they broke the social compact, infringed unalienable rights, ignored the rule of law, and utterly crushed the idea of limited government. The 14th grievance reveals how the unconsented to quartering of troops flew in the face of America's first principles. And the 15th grievance points out that the Administration of Justice Act subverted justice and infringed our first principles. The 11th through 15th grievances are vitally important. Yet, with the exception of quartering troops, I'm pretty confident you never learned about these grievances in school. Such a shame, and really a slap in the face of our founding generation. Those who try to claim that the revolution was about maintaining oppression, or about money, or racism, they really need to hone up to these and other grievances. The revolution was fought to defend liberty and the first principles of free and just government, not oppress them. Please join us for our next general episode when we continue our exploration of the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, unquote. Those are a couple of biggies. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for many fabulous resources, including lesson plans and primary sources. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide, our other two terrific podcast narrators are Mike Gerard Skanechny, who edits this podcast and is the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, IT guru and fabulous family man. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org.
which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. 